0: There are hundreds, I mean maybe thousands of George Washington scholars in the world, you know, who've been yeah. made life studying George Washington. And and incredible fans of, I mean, certainly millions of incredible fans. Of, and you know, here I am. You know, maybe I'm the punkish guy coming along trashing them.
1: This is a new angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's episode features yet another incredible best-selling author who lives right here in Missoula, Montana, Peter Stark. We talk about Peter's adventure writing. That was my first touch point with his work and At the Mercy of the River was a very important read for me. We also talk about his best-selling Astoria, and his latest book, Young Washington. That book tells the story of an exceptionally formative period in Washington's life and confronts much of the mythology around this revered founding father. I've learned a lot reading Peter's books, and I've enjoyed them thoroughly. And I'm excited for you to learn more about his writing right now. Okay, so I'm here today with Peter Stark. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Oh, yeah. Delighted to be here. That's kind Separated of, by a few miles.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, that's been my shtick with a podcast is saying, so I'm here today with such and so. And, you know, for the last couple months, it's been quite untrue. We're not here today together. But yeah, we're um, a couple miles apart here in Missoula. So well, yeah, you're, th- up,
0: you're upstream on Rattlesnake Creek and I'm downstream. So we've we've got this rushing band of water connecting us.
1: That's right. I should. I could probably put a question in a bottle and it would probably be to you within, you know, a couple of minutes. And it that would be, be really, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pumping right now. Um, well, excited to talk to you, Peter. You know, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. As we were saying before we started recording, I read Astoria um, kind of right when it came out. I'd read your work in, in Outside Magazine in particular, and then a mutual friend, Dean McGovern, Um, you know, Dean is a guy I run with occasionally and, you know, I am a little younger than you, Peter, but kind of, um, getting to the stage where the older I get, the better I was at endurance (laughs) sports. And, um, yeah, uh, Dean recommended at the mercy of the river and and I read that and it really kind of resonated with me. Some of the themes of, of maturing and your, your sort of Um, relationship to adventure as you mature. So that, that book really um, resonated with me and I appreciate the kind of raw honesty in that book. Uh, You know, that's, that was an adventure quite a, quite a few years ago. When was that um, run down the river? It was
0: 2002. And um, as you say, it was, uh, I was 48 then and that was really one of those, those uh, you know, pivotal times in my life where I realized, well, I can't, I can't do the things that I used to be able to do. And I actually, I don't want to do some of the things I used to do. Mm.
1: Yeah. Talk about that process a little bit. I mean, cause you, you sort of, um, it seemed like early in your career, you're writing a lot about adventures that, um, that involved yourself adventures you were doing.
0: Yeah, so that was really when I started off as a magazine writer um, a long time ago, in 1983. I started writing right away about adventurous things. And, um, you know, I'd grown up in that tradition, um, really adventurous family, you know, uh, did a lot of canoe trips and traveling and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, outdoors things, this and that. And so when I started Writing for magazines, um, I started writing first-person adventures, and the first big article I wrote was uh, for Outside Magazine. Um, when I went up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and hung out with the, with the old Norwegian ski jumpers and learned how to ski jump, you know the old the old way. This was you know way before all the sort of aerial skiing. Indeed, and uh, that's I mean I joke that I say it to you know. To get a story, and outside, I had to launch myself off of a ski jump, <laughs> <laughs> which is basically true. <laughs> Indeed. So that story started a whole series of stories that I did, mostly for Outside, but other magazines too, Smithsonian, and some others, where I would undertake, you know, some kind of adventure, and sometimes with an historical angle, sometimes not. And, and write about it in the first person. And so another kind of crazy example is a, a story I wrote um, for Outside where it um, has very much a Missoula connection. Um, we, we were living above what was then Goldsmith's Ice Cream right on, on the Clark Fork River. Okay. And I started thinking about the far north And then I started wondering, like, wow, if you drove north on Highway 93 and you kept going and then you kept going farther and you kept going until you couldn't go any farther than that, where would you end up? And that evolved into the story called Driving to Greenland. And it was basically we got in my father-in-law's VW van and drove five or six days north from Missoula, and then ended up in uh, Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, and then hopped um, smaller planes across the Arctic and ended up on Baffin Island. And then we kind of hitchhiked with this very small plane uh, that was being hired by somebody else to take us all the way up to Ellesmere Island, which is big traditional jumping off point for expeditions to the North pole, you know, way high up there. And, um, and then we hired this little plane to take us the the final hop over to Northern Greenland. Um, the, the farthest, uh, North villages in the world, which are, because the, you know, the whole globe kind of converges up there. It's, you know, the, this is only about a 200 mile flight from the Canadian Ellesmere Island. Okay. And, you know, I had a big adventure landing and the landing gear snapped off and oh my you know, gosh. spinning down this tundra runway. And we ended up spending a month up there, um, really fascinating, um, with, with hunters, Inuit hunters who still hunted in traditional ways. And so we were going out on the sea ice in dog sleds and, um, in, in boats and they, they were hunting narwhals with, with, uh with, um, harpoons and it was a, a crazy experience. Um, so that was a sort of first person adventure that, that I became engaged in. And I did that for, you know, quite a few years. And then in, uh, early 2002, um, I got a call from outside magazine saying, well, there's this kayak expedition going down an you know un, unexplored river in Africa, an unpaddled river, mm-hmm. you know, um or one that no westerners have paddled from from source to mouth. And um, called the Lugenda River in northern Mozambique. And they said, well, do you want to go on this and be the writer? And um I really hesitated about that because it by that time I was 48. Years old. And uh, Amy, my wife, Amy Ragsdale, um, who some of your listeners probably know, Mm -hmm. um, was the head of the dance program at the University of Montana for many years, a professor of dance. And um, she was working full time at the university teaching, and we had two young children at home. And I'm going off on this African adventure down this river that nobody could seem to tell me how dangerous it might be. right? And, um, and I was really hesitant about doing it, but Amy, who's m- more adventurous than I am, is a, h- more, a harder core traveler than I am. And, you know, is has a way of kind of watching us into some of these adventures, these travel adventures. As I hesitated, she said, I really think you should do this African river trip but if you get killed, I'm going to be really angry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: So, um, uh, so that was sort of the framework in which I went on this, this, uh, this incredible expedition um, that ended up in the book that you were referring to at the mercy of the river.
1: And, and with a um, cast of characters you had never had any interaction with before, right?
0: Right, right. And it was a, you know, it was a a wild, a wild crew and a little tiny expedition. It was organized by a a woman who's based out of Colorado who runs expeditions to uh, Africa, uh, safaris to Africa, um, named Sherry Briggs and has a company called Explore. And she was one who organized it. And um, and then her brother came along and then we had... um, a kayaking guide, you know, white African, he was Rhodesian by birth, you know, what's now Zimbabwe, but he had, he had uh, been a kayak guide on the Zambezi river, you know, through those big rapids. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really knew what he was doing. And then we had another guy, um, a South African guy who was a former South African military, um, uh, you know, member of, of, uh, you know, some kind of special forces, uh, operation you know again a white african and he uh you know he'd done the like the night jumps out of airplanes and over oceans and all that sort of thing and so he was kind of like the the security guide on this expedition and that no one really knew what what was down this river sherry had managed to fly over part of it but it was the tree canopy is so dense it's just hard to see what's mm-hmm. down there And so we were in sea kayaks, which are, you know, not really all that suited for whitewater rivers. And, um, and Sherry had the impression that there were some rapids, but not, you know, not many. And, um, and I think I had some kayak experience. Clinton had the, had a lot. And the other three had, had very little. So we start going down this river and it's, you know, everything you can imagine it's wild wilderness river in Africa is, you know, just there are the crocs launching off the banks into the water. They're, you know, they're hippos, which are the, the, the African guys are really scared of hippos that, mm-hmm. like our guides. And so are the, the villagers because they, the males are so territorial that they can just crush boats um, between those huge teeth. And so that, you know, the hippos, the crocs, um, you know, elephants on the bank. And in the beginning, every once in a while, we come to a, a, you know, a little village. And then after a while, there were no villages and then the river started dropping over these rock ledges. And, you know, the first day they, we were kind of able to pull our boats over them. And, um, you know, the second day they started getting worse and, you know, by about the third day in, it was really getting hairy. And, um, and I, I'd gone, I, I went over at least once in those early days, maybe mm-hmm. twice. And, um, you know, there you are, you're swimming with the crocs <laughs> in this river. And, and then we, as we went along, it just, we'd come around a bend. And at one point we came around a bend and, and, the lead guide, Clinton, um, was. Uh, I, I was in this uh, I was in a tandem with Sherry's brother, Steve. Um, the second kayak back, and Clinton was ahead, and um, we came racing around uh, a bend in the river, you know, which is overhung with trees. You know, there's still it's not wide, and it's the river braids in a lot of places, mm-hmm. and. Clinton standing there on a boulder, yelling, "Stop! Stop! Right here!" And, and so, you know, it was currently was swift, but you know, we managed to stop on this boulder where he was. And you look over the edge of the boulder, and there's this big waterfall dropping away. And it that was the situation was kind of emblematic of what that felt like, at least for me, going down that river. Sure that the unknown was just around every bend and it was really disconcerting. And I was, as I say, I was, you know, in my late forties and had kids at home and, and thinking, okay, when, when am I getting myself or we, um, getting into a really stupid situation? And, and at one point, I think mean, you've read the, the book, but at one point I just, I, I really balked and I didn't think I could go on mm-hmm. Cause it was just too dangerous. And then I thought, well, what's the alternative? <laughs> there isn't one, you know, what am I going to walk through the, through the forest for the next six days? Um, so I had to keep going, but it was, it was one of those really uh, kind of a, a, an epiphany about how I'd, I'd reached as far as I wanted to go in the adventurous life. This was going to be the, the, the apex. And from, from here I was, taking up kind of a safer, safer approach sure. to, uh, to writing into life. And, you know, I used to, I'd say a uh, joke sometimes that, you know, I used to, I used to do all this crazy stuff and write about it, And then after a while I realized I could get killed doing that stuff. And so now I write about other people doing the crazy stuff and so I'm I'm writing about historical adventures is is what I'm writing about now. But that that river trip was a, a, a pivotal moment for me.
1: Yeah, and, and that came through. So kind of you you couldn't tell what was next in, in terms of your writing career at the time, but um, in terms of just your 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 sensibility in reporting that experience, um, it certainly resonated with me. And it's been interesting to kind of see how your your work has. In, unfolded since you know with Astoria and now Young Washington I want to talk about both of those projects but before we do just generally like what in terms of you know writing a story about or reporting on a story about adventure like what are the qualities of an adventure that you think interest you like what are the hooks for you that that draw you in and and make you think that this is this is a project I want to I want to dig into
0: there's something that really compels me, and and at least it did. In fact, I was sort of driven by it, and that was I was really interested in seeing how indigenous people live mm. in these in these very different environments. We we spent our honeymoon hiking around on the Tibetan plateau with you know with uh, Tibetan nomads and. Uh, you know, we were spent that time with hunters in Inuit hunters in Northern Greenland. And that this, this Africa river trip, the same thing, you know, that really being in touch with these people who have a whole different way of life, a whole different perspective on life. And I wanted to be exposed to that. I wanted to see it. I wanted to understand it. And I also had this, you know, almost burning anxiety that the world was, was becoming so interconnected so quickly that if I wanted to experience those things, those people, if I wanted to, to, to visit people like that, cultures like that, I had to do it now because they might not be around much longer in, in that, in, you know, in their, in their very traditional way of life. And, um, so that was a uh, what I considered made a, a good adventure um, for me was to uh, was to be able to learn something about these cultures firsthand, sure. and um, and uh, and I did, and I'm really grateful. I, I I did that. It was you know it was not easy to, to get there and to um, to there were, there are a lot of difficulties about it. And one you know, one of them being, of course, income, you know, when you're doing <laughs> <that> thing. <laughs> um, so uh, and fortunately, Amy had a, her teaching job at the U, which kind of, you know, kept us above water, but um, you know, my, my writing career at that point was very much up and down. And yet I was you know, driven by this, you know, kind of compulsion to get out to these, these very, what we'd say, remote societies.
1: And so, would you say that you know Astoria was kind of a, a breakthrough publication for you? Is that your kind of your first book that really took off? You know, New York Times bestseller and got into the the mainstream conversation. Um, is that yes,
0: a- I, I, that I, that one did certainly more than any other before. I had in uh, what, the year two thousand one, I. Came out with a book called Last Breath, okay. which was um, there's a long backstory to that. But it's stories about fictitious adventurers, you know, whom I invented. But then I put them into these really desperate situations, and trace their the science, you know, the actual science of their physiology and, and to some degree, psychology in these uh, situations of hypothermia. Um, heat stroke uh, falling all sorts of uh, uh, malaria Um, and so it's sort of a a mix of science and adventure and that that resonated with some people that did Mm -hmm. quite well and it's I don't know it's translated into I think seven or eight languages so um, it did had a good presence abroad but I think the difference was that when I wrote Astoria which came out in 2014 that here was a case where I, I really threw myself into the, into the history of it. And um, I mean, into the history and in some of my early, earlier books, like at the mercy of the river, I tried to weave in history. Sure. um, The history of African exploration, which was, I really enjoyed doing. And, Um, at one point my agent said you know you write really well about history (laughs) maybe you should try (laughs) writing some history right and so I came across this this story I stumbled upon it about the historians and you know I'd really grown up steeped in the stories of Lewis and Clark as as we are here in, in Montana and I grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin, where there's a you know the fur trade was so elemental to the to the beginnings of the settlement of that area. But I'd never really heard about this expedition sent by John Jacob Astor, and yet it was just the craziest expedition. With so many things going wrong, and you know it's like where everything went right for Lewis and Clark, everything went wrong for these guys. And out of I think what is it out of 140 of the participants, roughly half, 70 or so, died in various violent ways. And, you know, you compare to that, to Lewis and Clark, who, who are always held up as sort of a paragon of of success and safety. And I mm-hmm. think they lost one guy to, uh, I think Sergeant Floyd, to appendicitis right. out of roughly 30. And so um, here's this crazy story. And and I might've actually heard of it from my father who is deeply into local history and, and, and the fur trade and voyagers. And so he, I'm sure he'd mentioned Astor to me in connection with the fur trade, but I never really thought anything of it until I came across this story years later. And it really touched a, a note with me. It really resonated with me, these guys struggling in the wilderness. And I realized that was something what, that that has intrigued me all along is to see how humans respond to these extreme situations in the wilderness. You know, the what are the emotional dynamics and also just the physical survival skills that, that come out in these situations. And so that story just, it really felt like it was uh, really in my line. You know, I felt once I started writing it, I felt like I was just kind of rocking and rolling because I, I could bring my own wilderness experiences to bear on on what these guys were undergoing, including paddling down an unknown river um, in quite similar circumstances that, you know, there was a much bigger expedition with a much greater disaster looming at the end. But, um, you know, I had a real sense of what it's like to be out in these places. And so I think if, you know, if that's any, if there's one thing that, might distinguish my writing from other writing about history is that I really try to bring that vividness to the the story I'm telling that what it feels like to be in some of these situations and because we you know you hear these stories about oh well you know George Washington he was a young surveyor and then he was in the French and Indian war and it's all kind of abstract Mm -hmm. and You know, but this guy spent like five years in the wilderness almost in and out of the wilderness and had all sorts of crazy adventures and misadventures and, you know, almost died falling off a raft into a frozen river and, you know, um, all sorts of crazy things. And so I really went at that with kind of a fine tooth comb to do the research for, for this young Washington book. To find every little teeny detail I could, you know, everything that he wrote in that at that time, and everything you know, written not so much about him, but about this the situation, uh, French and Indian War, and in the in the wilderness, and and using that, I I tried to bring out the vividness of young George going through the experiences and also the struggles he was having, and he had a lot of struggles.
1: A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, let's talk about some of those struggles. I mean, in the sense that like probably many people that sort of, you know, have a high school level conception of history, it's like... You know, this kid cut down the cherry tree, then he crossed the Delaware, and then, you know, he was the the first president and the, the man that would be king and stepped aside, nobly, um, but not much in between. And so you, you zero in on this five-year period of, of his young life, and it's so illuminating. I mean, he, I mean and that must have been what drew you in, is to sort of see this character that we have uh, a big—well— you know, not not necessarily a mythology around, but, but a lot of
0: um well yeah, I'd say yes, there is a mythology around okay. him. And some of it deserved and some of it, you know, myth. <laughs> um but that 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 was part of exactly what interested me was um here was this real guy, you know, a twenty-two-year-old who inadvertently sets off the French and Indian yeah. War by ambushing a a, a French diplomatic party out in the woods and um, a, a guy who's so thin-skinned and um, really whiny mm-hmm. at the beginning. And he's, uh, he's always feeling like he's being dissed. He's always feeling like he's not getting what he actually deserves. He's constantly complaining to his superior about, you know, about money, about promotion, about this and that until his superior governor, British Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia. You can almost literally see him roll his eyes between <laughs> the lines or the letters he writes. It was like, you know, George, I, I really don't want to hear from you anymore.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Just and, get it like, go
0: back to your post. And um, yet here was this guy who had, you know, all these human foibles that way all of us have human foibles and, and who made lots of mistakes the way all of us make lots of mistakes. And Yet he somehow got beyond that, and um, and he became this incredible leader. Which is, you know, he was an incredible leader, and and he, you know, was managed to lead in that selfless way. Um, it was never without an ego, but that very much thinking for the greater good. And it's such a radical departure from or change from what he was thinking at as a 22 year old, it was, it wasn't the greater good. It was like, it was so much about George. And, and I, so that transformation really fascinated me. And, and I also was really fascinated by the way uh, wilderness and war had uh, played a part in that transformation of of George from this really self-centered guy to this, you know, great selfless leader and um and i i reflect on that somewhat in the in the book and about in you know in in wilderness you're put in these extreme situations which which he was and that you know the whole um social hierarchy that he grew up with in virginia you know Mm -hmm. they're known to be at that era in the mid 1700s uh eight different classes of people in virginia wow and but you get out in the wilderness and in a, a difficult, extreme situation. Really, none of that matters. Yeah, there's You're, one
1: class of people essentially, or maybe two: survivors and none. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Exactly, and and so I, I was really interested in the in the tr- transformer aspect of the wilderness um, for young George, and and likewise that you know the the warfare part. You know, he fought in the French and Indian War and in. in this, at this period in his early 20s and had a, had a good hand in setting the spark that made it explode um, in the first place. And, um, you know, how there are, at least in my mind, some really key moments, these sort of transformative moments where um, the first really big, uh, and it's not such a big battle, but really disastrous battle, other than the ambush of the, French diplomatic party is when the French come after George and the French have their Indian allies. And George is holed up in a little fort called Fort necessity and has a few hundred of his Virginia soldiers with him. And he's, you know, this young officer and he's built this fort. It's this really little clap crap affair and he's built it kind of down on a swamp and he's built it. So as it turns out, the French and the Indians can hide behind trees on a hill just above the fort and shoot right down in it. And he's planning on, a, you know, uh, attacking them with his men all lined up in formation. And they can't even, they can't even see the Indians to, to, to attack because right. they're all hiding. And, you know, so nothing works and nothing goes well. And it starts pouring rain. And it ends up being this just terrible situation where they're in these mud filled trenches and there are these descriptions, these firsthand descriptions, these trenches are full of mud and blood and everybody's, you know, their bodies strewn around and, um, you know, and they're, they're, you know, clearly going to lose this, this battle. Um, And I think George had to have gone through this trans transformation in a way, um, I, I, or at least started started it right there. And looking at the, you know, at the faces of these young soldiers who are, you know, lying dead in the muddy, bloody trenches and uh, in the rain as darkness is falling and realizing that he was really the one who led them into this situation. Mm. And um, he was really very much responsible for the situation. And, so in that moment and other moments like those, I see George's um, sense of his self, that, that that self-centeredness beginning to spread out, you know, wider fashion to um, become more empathetic to others around him. And first starting with his men and fellow officers and then um, going out from there, he, he eventually becomes... Re- responsible for protecting the frontier settlers of virginia from attack from the french and the and the indian allies and it's a really difficult task impossible to defend these these uh, frontier settlers and yet they're pleading with him they're begging him to help them and you know that just can't help but to develop his spreading sense of empathy and he writes a letter at that time actually that that it's almost it's almost hysterical in i mean not funny but but uh emotionally wrought about how he'd give his own life if he could to save these people but he can't nothing could be done and so over the 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 years these five years when he's in wilderness and war i really sense his his uh his sense of self and sense of empathy moving from being totally focused on george to being focused on a on a much broader um uh circle of people around him sure and eventually he takes that a long way in you know 20 years later really
1: yeah absolutely so he's emerging as a leader as as somebody who sort of is thinking more than thinking about more than just himself and his own agenda um Within that, you know how were how, how were his feelings about the British Empire emerging, and, and you know how did in the period you studied how did, did you see seeds for how he would become such a leader in the revolutionary effort?
0: Oh, yeah, very much so. And um, until you really read the details of that era of his life, you don't realize how badly he wanted to be a officer in the British Royal army.
1: I mean, there did seem like there was a little chip on the shoulder, you know, growing Uh, up. Yeah, 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 (laughs)
0: exactly. But that, that he, he went to great lengths to, to, um, you know, make his case to higher ups, British higher ups. At one point he rode a thousand mile round trip journey, leaving his post in the Virginia wilderness to ride up to Boston to petition the, the British general there to, um, you know, give him a commission in the Royal Army. He was a soldier, a, an officer in the, in the Virginia colonial military. And it was a much lesser rank, you know, had much less prestige than a Royal Army officer. And so he spent years trying to, several years, trying to become a British Royal Army officer. And from a very early age, There are letters, a young age, I think the first one I I think is at 22, when he writes again to Governor Dinwiddie um, saying, you know, we Americans are being treated as second class to the British, to the, you know, the British soldiers and, you know, really complaining about that and about, you know, the food allotment and the pay and on and on and on. And so he carries that, that resentment with him. I mean, he really wants to be a, a British Royal Army officer, and he, he never makes it. And um, yet he goes back to, um, after the French and Indian War, he goes back at age 27 or so um, to Virginia Plantation Society, and he marries Martha, who's the richest widow in Virginia. And so now he's he's really has kind of risen to right. the top of Virginia society. And he... Aspires in a way to that to a British lifestyle, the way all or most of the Virginia plantation owners did. That you know, it was really kind of a British country gentleman lifestyle, and and, and an expensive one to maintain, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and it was maintained by many, many, many slaves, you know, and and um, and uh, indentured servants, and you know, all sorts of what we call our know, human cruelties. So he's aspiring to that lifestyle. But then once the colonies start, you know, rebelling, he's one of the first to really jump on saying, if we have to, we'll take up arms against these guys. Okay. And so he, you know, he made the, the, uh, his, his resentment against the British, I don't think, caused him to just like uh randomly rebel against the british but it was one of the it was part of the emotional baggage he carried going into the revolution and a lot of the americans and the virginia planters they had their own emotional baggage about you know taxation and whatnot so um but yeah he was very much a, a product of this period of his life and and you know resentment and disappointment at not being made a british royal army officer was very much a part of it
1: indeed the, the book peter is is fantastic young washington how wilderness and war forged america's founding father so good in fact that your work was sort of wrapped into or picked up by this larger um history channel documentary washington um it was out i believe it was i believe it aired in february of of this last yeah, this past yeah. year I want to talk about that experience. I mean, working with Doris Kearns Goodwin, sort of the the George Washington of presidential historians, if you will. Um, But yeah, talk about that experience.
0: Yeah, that was, it was really great fun. I mean, the, the uh, it's, so it's a three part mini series and it's uh, each part is two hours about the life of George Washington. Mm -hmm. And the first uh, two hours, you know, focus on when he's younger. I think it might go up to the time the revolution starts, but certainly this period, which I write about and I write about in great detail. And so that the uh, producers of the, um, uh, of this, the History Channel series, an outfit called Rail Splitter Productions, got a hold of me, I guess it was just about a year ago and said they were putting this thing together and Doris Kearns Goodwin is likely to be involved. And, um, and you know, would you want to be involved? And I said, Oh yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I and I and I do feel like this period of George's life, I, I feel I can speak to that if I do say so as well as as almost anybody, because I I just s- spent four years working on studying it, mm-hmm. writing about it. So you know, I have a lot to say about it. Um, and so they they flew me out to New York. I think it was maybe last March and. And we spent I don't know some hours. Um, it was just one long day shoot um, in this nice townhouse doing the shoot. And and they'd really done their homework and they, you know, asked good questions and you know they were clearly very professional and with several cameras going and you know sound people and um, you know moving cameras and on and on. And then um, you know and then that's the last I really had anything to do with it until February. And for the producers, um, it was a huge project and, and they, you know, they interviewed so many people and they, they went and and, uh, they shot the thing in 17 days in Romania. And, you know, all these wilderness scenes in Romania. So, um, and, you know, crossing the Delaware, you know, scenes like that and you know, recreating winter in Romania. And, so then in uh, early February, I got a call uh, one day and um, and I, I was hearing that it might be airing pretty soon, but I got a call one day and it was, you know, one of those calls where it's just sort of blank on the other end of the line. And, you know, the first thing I think of is, oh, it's just another mortgage refinance call.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: and, 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 you know, they say, is this Peter? And I said, oh, now the mortgage people know my first name yeah and then he said i said who's this this is doris <laughs> and, oh my gosh and and uh um and so we had a, a great chat and her with and her her business partner beth um Latsky was on the line too and they they invited me to come out to mount vernon for the premiere of this history channel series which was uh it was only like 10 days away the 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 premiere and so I, I, you know, I did. And I've got some crazy stories about that, including riding a bike through the rain and dark from Reagan National Airport down the Potomac to Mount Vernon. Oh, my Beth. gosh. That's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> we're just like George riding his horse. But it was a cool event. And um, some of the other historians were there. And, and Doris was there. And Beth, and you know, and the, a lot of the producers and from Rail Splitter and from the History Channel, and, you know, a big auditorium, it was, it was all by invitation and special guests. And they, of course, they closed Mount Vernon, the whole place, including the, the, the mansion, the house to give, you know, our group private tours through. And so it was really a kind of VIP treatment. And of course, what what part do they show? Well, they show part one. And uh, you know, that was the screening. That was the premiere event. Mm-hmm. And so that was I mean, that was pretty cool. There I was like all of a sudden I'm up on the big screen and uh at this uh at this premiere. And it was so it was it was great. And and I also got to to uh, I've gotten to know uh, to uh Doris and Beth um from from that experience and we've been in touch somewhat since. But the They're great fun. I mean, Doris is just a kick and really fun, really smart. So together um, and has, you know, a thousand projects in the works. So that's that whole experience was delightful.
1: So within this crew uh, or maybe outside the crew, when you've been sort of promoting this work, I mean, you study this, this five-year slice of this fellow's life, George Washington, when, you know, he, he, I think for lack of a, a more elegant term, you could say it was a little punkish. And yeah. uh so well, whatever at,
0: the word was back then.
1: Yeah. So at odds with, you know, what he later became and what the sort of popular conception is Um you ever get any pushback from folks that are like, Hey, don't say that about George Washington. That, that can't be true.
0: I was so braced for that. That's a really good question. I was so braced for that. And, you know, there, there are hundreds, I mean, maybe thousands of George Washington scholars in the world, you know, who've been, yeah. they've made life studying George Washington and, and incredible fans of, I mean, certainly millions of incredible fans of mm-hmm. George Washington. And, you know, here I am, you know, maybe I'm the punkish guy coming along, <laughs> trashing him in this book. And so I was, I was apprehensive about that and I was really braced for it. But on, on the other hand, I, you know, I really did my research. I nailed down everything very carefully. It's all documented and cited and whatnot. And, um, and I, you know, I tried to be both fair, you know, both fair and tough with Aunt George and acknowledge that he was a great leader. He became a great leader, no doubt about it. And he was absolutely fearless um, in, in battle. Um, and so the first time I really Put this out in the into that uh, arena of the experts and the big fans was I was this now this is a almost what, a year and a half ago I was invited to Mount Vernon for the first time this is before the history channel thing who um give a, a book talk on on my book and you know and so there I am standing in front of an auditorium of I don't know at least 200 people who are it, at Mount Vernon, you know, house of George. And, um, you know, I, I thought I was just like, I'm speaking blasphemy about this guy in, in, in his own house. And so I gave my presentation, which is, you know, it goes through a lot of his foibles and, and, um, is some of the transforma- transformation we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then there was a question and answer period came. And so, you know, I, I was ready to like to, you know, duck and cover right there and um but no not not a single what you call hostile question um or or remark and i that the same has been true in every presentation i've given and i've given dozens upon dozens including you know the army war college and on and on but what it is that people are really curious they really want to know like what was this guy like and they have questions and so it's it's their curiosity that gets engaged about this period of his life. And it's not, I've never had anyone say that they were, you know, offended or I was tearing down or idle or anything like that, which was a complete surprise to
1: me. Yeah. That's so refreshing to hear. And, And you wonder what the dynamics are that sort of sets that apart. Cause there are, there are prominent figures in history that, you know, we just simply kind of don't talk about big aspects of their life, whether it's Thomas Jefferson, you know, you know, fathering slave children or you know, Helen Keller kind of being a vociferous communist and so forth, you know, those parts of their history are certainly left out of the, the grade school versions. Do you think there's something different about Washington? Maybe it's the fact that it, it occurred when he was young and he grew out of those things that, that maybe set him apart?
0: Uh, well, I think uh, that's certainly a big factor in, um, if he hadn't grown out of those things, he certainly wouldn't have been the great leader that right. he eventually became. And so, and I think um, I find it very, you know, phenomenally admirable that he that he transformed in the way that he did, and and you know became this person with an entirely different orientation, yet retained some of his skills and he was always a competent guy in a lot of ways and uh, conscientious and on and on. And that, 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 that transformation, I think, stands as much as anything as an example of what, of how great he was. And so some of these other leaders, I, you know, do you see their, their, uh, if you want to call them weaknesses, when they're in that, position of leadership does that undermine them there was you know george didn't as a leader didn't always make the right decisions either mm-hmm. but i think because he his trajectory was so long started really so low by comparison and went so high over such a long period of time you just can't help but say wow this guy is phenomenal
1: yeah yeah Well, certainly fascinating to learn more about him. Peter, I want to be respectful of your time on our, you know, in our, in our time together here, but, and I know this is a risky question to ask writers, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now?
0: I can, I can tell you. Um, so I'm working on, uh, until about an hour ago today, a book about the great Shawnee Indian leader Tecumseh. Okay and about William Henry Harrison, who was, in a way, his, his you know opponent, antagonist. Mm-hmm. And Tecumseh was trying to unify tribes across the, the uh, center of the continent to stand as one and not give any of their lands over to the federal government, the white government, um, unless all tribes agreed to it. Because, of course, that was the way the federal government got so much of the land was they you know they were playing one tribe off against the other or having one tribe sell somebody else's land and um, things like that and so um Tecumseh put together this coalition to to stop that and he was a you know again one of these incredible leaders who's who's in his era he was so widely acknowledged as being this incredible leader and William Henry Harrison was the the uh you know came from washington's background in a a lot of ways that he was the heir to a virginia tobacco plantation and you know the soil had sort of become exhausted and the family was sort of out of money and then the father died and young william henry his sixth generation heir uh bailed out on the plantation life and went over the mountains into the ohio valley and became an indian fighter and so he and Tecumseh literally went toe to toe. And in some cases they met in person on the front grounds of the, of the governor's uh, mansion out in the woods of, of what's now Indiana to try to work things out. And they had tremendous respect for each other as leaders, but they both embodied a completely different vision, a completely different way of life and a vision of, of a life and a vision of land ownership and a vision of acquisition. So that's what I'm working on.
1: Yeah. Sounds fantastic. What's the, what's the timeline or when, when can we expect? That?
0: Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's the risky question. Yeah, I
1: suppose it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you always have a it day.
0: Right? I, I it's, it's I'm about, I'm a little past halfway done with it, but, you know, Closing in on the two-thirds mark.
1: Is that kind of yeah. like a marathon that you're not halfway done until you get to mile twenty? <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then of course, then you want always want to go back and rerun the first half of the marathon.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, probably a little <laughs> to slower for,
0: you know, <laughs> to make to make it better. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's due this fall, and um, I, I I hope to get it in then. Um, so I, you know, it's and you know, it's going along well, but it's again, you know, it's this research is very um, time-consuming in these cases. Indeed, and you know, and, and especially when you're finding, uh, trying to find information about an Indian leader in you know 1795 and 1805, that you know that there were just not written records left by by the Shawnee, but there were records, you know, left by letters. By settlers and things like that. So, you know, it's a lot of poking around, poking around, poking around.
1: Well, I certainly look forward to seeing that work when it comes out. Peter, such a pleasure to uh, hear about all of your projects. Um, I encourage people to, you know, check out Young Washington, check out Astoria. If you're sort of an aging athlete like me, check out uh, At the Mercy because that really spoke to me. Yeah, and Peter, I look forward to maybe an opportunity to meet in person, um, and we can talk about the um, the Tecumseh Project then, perhaps.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to get together in person. Um, And it's it's been a fun interview and covered a lot of ground.
1: Well, thank you, and um, we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson, Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes, and finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.